Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. You're here with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And with me, as always, is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. It's good to be here, Darren. Well, today is Thursday, the 14th of October, and we are excited to be doing something a little bit different today. We're going to talk about the future. But before I explain, we have two guests here with us. First, we welcome back Heather Smith, who was a guest back in episode 47 after a long career in the Australian public service, including serving as Deputy Director General of ONA, a Deputy Secretary at DFAT, and Secretary in the Departments of Communications and of Industry, Innovation and Science. I'm very pleased to say that Heather has now actually joined the ANU as a professor in the National Security College one of many hats she now wears. Welcome back, Heather. Thank you, Darren. Great to be back. And second, it's very long overdue, but it's a thrill to welcome Catherine Manstead. Catherine is a senior fellow in the practice of national security at the National Security College, and she's also the director of cyber intelligence, which I think is the coolest job title that exists short of literally being a 007, and that's at the cybersecurity company CyberCX. Welcome, Catherine privilege to be here, Darren. So Alan and I have asked Heather and Catherine onto the podcast, as I said, not to talk about the news of the day, but to take a break and think longer term. Our inspiration was a publication that came out in March of this year called Global Trends 2040, A More Contested World. It was put out by the National Intelligence Council in the United States this is the seventh edition of the report, which has been published every four years since 1997. As explained in the documents forward, quote, global trends is designed to provide an analytic framework for policymakers early in each administration as they craft national security strategy and navigate an uncertain future. The goal is not to offer a specific prediction of the world in 2040, Instead, our intent is to help policymakers and citizens see what may lie beyond the horizon and prepare for an array of possible futures. So let's kick things off. Alan, this episode was your idea, so I want to ask you why we should concern ourselves with this sort of document. You know, what's the policymaking context for something like Global Trends and, and how can it be useful? Well, every now and again, even podcasts need to take a step back into a uh, more reflective mode. And um, if things work out, 2040 is about the time our first nuclear-powered submarine should be arriving. So it's important to think about the environment we'll have to deal with at that time. Darren, every, every senior intelligence analyst I've known has complained at one time or another that for policymakers in a country like ours, the urgent always drives out the important and the immediate drives out the long term. After long experience, I suspect that that's just a systemic reality in a democracy like ours and nothing will ever change it. But the problem is that the world does change. We know indisputably that terrorists attack office towers and the whole notion of national security is transformed. 
We know that problems in the subprime housing finance market can generate a global recession, and we know that a virus found in bats can unexpectedly make a jump into human transmission and force the world into lockdown. But our inbuilt tendency to, as Henry Kissinger once uh, wrote, project the familiar into the future, continues undaunted by all this. Now, obviously, we can't know what will happen, but at least forcing ourselves to think about alternative futures unsettles our complacency, and unsettling complacency is a good thing to do. As you said, the US National Intelligence Council, which is now part of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, understands that very well and has prepared a global trends report for every incoming administration since 1997. I thought it was interesting this year because it's normally released earlier in the election cycle, but there seemed to be some anxiety this time about how Donald Trump might respond. So it didn't appear until Joe Biden was safely in office. I'm an enormous admirer of the US intelligence community's analytical integrity and competence. An independent intelligence assessment capability is the best possible antidote to the tendency present in every system at every time for policymakers to interpret developments in the world through the prism of the policies they've already put in place to deal with them. So this document was tested not just within the US and other governments, but outside it as well. Past iterations, they've come to the ANU. I don't know if that happened this time. But anyway, it's been you know very widely shared around the place. I would love to think that a report like this was carefully read by incoming members of the new administration. But the realist in me is content with the fact that someone somewhere in the system has at least done this sort of careful research and analysis. And by making it public, it's also a small but significant gift from the United States to the international community, I reckon. And wouldn't it be great to see a Chinese version? That would be fantastic. I, I encourage anyone listening with influence in the Chinese government to produce one for us to read. Do we do anything like this ourselves, Alan? Well, we certainly do broad, forward-looking national assessments, but nothing that's made public in this way. But Darren, look, the, the, you asked me whether something like this was useful, and I want to throw that to Heather because she's seen the process from the perspective both of the Intelligence Assessment Agency and the end user. You, you ran two departments, as Darren said, Industry and Communications, and both were focused on the future in sort of important ways. So from your perspective, is there a point to exercises like Global Trends? I think there is a point, Alan. I think just to start off the discussion, I think arguably to me, it's one of the best publicly available insights into analytical tradecraft performed by intelligence agencies. So I think that in itself is valuable. And while there's actually, I think, nothing unique about the identification of the structural forces and the emerging dynamics that the report focuses on, and much has been written on each of these various forces, to me, it's the way that it's integrated and the interdisciplinary framework that they adopt that really makes it an impressive document. 
And this might seem an odd comment, but I think their approach is is actually a masterclass in how to do good policy if you think about the process itself. So the process starts by looking back at their past predictions to evaluate and examine learnings. What follows from that is a very intensive consultation process, I think as you mentioned, both within the US but also around the world. The report is empirically and evidence-based. They then seek additional input, commission additional work to fill gaps in knowledge as the process unfolds. And then feedback is then sought on the, the relevant perspectives and they're taken into account. So they're trying to navigate a highly complex landscape in an interdisciplinary way to really focus on a few key issues. And then I think what makes it really accessible is it's presented in a very pithy, readable format with such conclusions as, um, which is in the one of the conclusions in this report, the world is inextricably bound by cognitivity and fragmenting in different directions. To me, that just completely summarises the world that we are facing now and into the future. So I think often one of the hardest things to do in policy is actually to identify the right question to be addressed. What's the problem that we're trying to solve for? And I think the NIC does this well. What it doesn't do is really the next step on how we should respond to all of those forces. So should there be an Australian version of this sort of thing, do you think? Does it make a difference if you do it from an Australian perspective? I think in the Australian context, there's lots of futures type exercises that are undertaken both in and outside of government. And as I said, a lot has been written on some of the individual issues, but I don't think there's an Australian equivalent, as you said before. I think, and the Nick's been at this for a quarter of a century, in Australia, we're still somewhat more compartmentalised, I think, in our approach to understanding the forces that are shaping our destiny. We've had successive defence white papers, obviously. We've had four foreign policy white papers over the last 20 years, some perhaps more ill-timed than others for, for global events. And then there's Treasury's intergenerational report, which is produced every five years since the early 2000s, that really looks at the structural trends on demographics and technology and climate change and tries to look at our economy and budget over the next 40 years. So... So I think in all three cases, they're inevitably seen as the government's view, perhaps more so than, than seen as, as independent of, of the national interest. ONI, as you mentioned, is, is obviously producing national assessments. That also runs a, a very good process, is appropriately contestable in terms of who's at the table and combines all source but also secret intelligence. But they're short documents and in the end, they're not for public consumption. So. So I think it may just be the policy tragic wonk that I am and having had you know a bit of experience in engaging with the NIC, but I do see value in having a document like this, whether it's early in the life of a government or, or whether it's at some different point in time, I don't have a strong view, but I think doing it independently of government and resourcing it is really important. It might go some way to, to your question to really dealing with the concerns of government that once you create such a document in a department of state, ministers feel that they need to impart their own political spin, I guess, to ensure that the analytics is not inconsistent with their own short-term messaging. But this is really anti-ethical to the value add of approach like this that is necessary for long-term planning. So you know, I think it's 
it's also important for another reason that I think we need a more we need more of a national conversation to help inform the public and also our, our politicians about the complexity of the world that we're trying to navigate and the inevitable trade-offs that are required to manage this complexity. So my own view is that in recent years, there has been a bit of an inverse relationship between Australia's place in the world and the challenges that we face and the capacity of our political class, and I, I mean broadly defined, to really bring the public on this journey. So, so I'm probably in the naive camp that, that thinks that these processes like this are quite important to lift our eyes to the horizon to actually understand the forces that are shaping our future and the difficult choices governments have to make. And that sense, it might go in some small way to actually help our politicians focus beyond the next election to start to address some of these issues. Yeah, thanks, Heather. I just want to reassure you, you're in a safe space here. There are only policy tragic wonks on this <laughs> podcast. Can, can I turn now to Catherine for a bit of an outsider's perspective? Because Heather, you mentioned these kinds of exercises are done inside and outside of government. And Catherine's been involved in some of the ones done outside of government through the, the Futures Council and the, and the Futures Centre at, at the National Security College. So Catherine, we've just heard from two insiders there who have both been involved in producing and, in, and I guess, and consuming this kind of work. Do you agree with, with how they see this document and, and the process and, and how has it shaped the work the NSC has done that you've been involved with? Well, let me start off with my initial reaction when reading this report, which is I thought, what would Darren Lim do? And as a regular listener to this podcast, I thought, ah, he would break it down into some type of framework to help understand perhaps the foundational purpose of such a report. And I thought, who, who ultimately is the audience? of a report like Global Trends. And I came up with three buckets and then some sub-buckets being the Darren Lim acolyte that I am. The first is I thought, well, this is in some sense a bit of a, it's a, there is some bureau, bureaucratic signaling here. It is a bureaucratic agency talking to other elements of the bureaucracy within America. It's a bureaucratic exercise. It's about trust building. It's about putting the next stamp on something perhaps. Then I thought, second, there's the domestic US audience that, in some sense, this report is trying to influence, and that's the incoming leadership, that's policymakers, policy tragics like us, also the wider public and the business community that are making decisions that will shape the future of America. And then the third bucket is, of course, this is a global report and it is a diplomatic exercise. It's an exercise in framing issues in a way, I would argue, that is beneficial to the US and to policymakers. And in some sense, it is a bit of a signal. It's a bit of a muscle flex, I think, to Alan's point before, from a democracy like the US that tends to do a lot of its thinking in the open to say, hey, this is what an open society does. We produce reports like this, uh, step up to the plate, China and other non-democratic countries. But it's also about framing issues and setting the agenda, I would argue. And so to go back to that second point, this is for domestic audiences, this is about trying to influence them to make good decisions. I would question the usefulness of a report like this, and I'm being a bit cheeky here, but in the way in which it does shape good decisions. If you look at previous reports, for instance, as early as 2004, the Global Trends Report was warning of a global pandemic. And subsequent reports, global trends reports, picked this up again and again and again. And yet we saw from the US and from countries around the world policy inaction on that front. 
the author of or the principal author of three of the reports that came out during the Obama administration has written about how his team tried to, quote unquote, not so subtly influence decision makers by putting terrorism at the back of the report and bringing China and India to the front. And he's lamented that that effort didn't prompt the discussion among policymakers that he and his team wanted. So in terms of domestic audiences, I think it can potentially be a useful tool. Has it in the past? And would it be in Australia? I'm not so convinced. And then when it comes to the diplomacy and and framing front, I think it's intriguing to me that a lot of the words that pop up in this report, a lot of the the concepts and the frames are, are very much frames and concepts of the zeitgeist in America right now. We see in the report a lamentation of the malaise of democracy. We see words like contestation, which appear in American diplomatic signalling. They appear in American academia and commentary all the time. So I think in, in some respects, yes, it is an independent report, but it is very much embedded in the context from which it has come. Embedded and constrained, presumably. I mean, Heather sort of alluded to that. At the end of the day, they do have political masters and they need to maintain their viability as a bureaucratic actor. I mean, is there a better way? You know, I'll I'll invite Heather and, and, and Alan to respond, but do you think there is a different approach that could be done given those constraints? I think they've done best efforts to try and get through those constraints by the broad nature of the consultation. And from page one, the report signals that a central component of its methodology has been trying to break out of their biases and blind spots by wide consultation. But on the flip side, you know, you flick to the acknowledgement section at the back, one of my favourite things to do, and whether it's reading a book or a report, go to the acknowledgements, see who the real kind of puppet masters are. And the acknowledgements reads like the great and the good of the, the usual suspects who'd be contributing to foreign affairs, who run international relations departments at Ivy League universities um, in the US and around the world. And I can't help but think, is this a global trends report looking out to 2040? Or is it just a really good snapshot of the way in which elites in America and around the world are today in 2021 thinking about the future. As card-carrying members of that international elite, Heather and Alan, do you concede that Catherine has a point? I'll, I'll turn to you first, Heather. I think I'm probably glass half full. I think those reports have always been eerily silent on the US itself as such a shaper of the system. I probably see more of the discourse evolving into a wider audience over time with with the NICs. They do make a reference, obviously, to talking around continents around the world. I guess for me, it's, you know, as I said before, it's the, there's very few institutions and bodies that can matrix the world in that format and provide a, you know, holistic view of the challenges. So, uh, the language is, you know, the recent report is is certainly there's nothing optimistic in the language, but, you know, we can come back to it later. I've also looked at the stream of reports over several years and find the evolution of thinking not dissimilar to actually how the world has evolved and, and the challenges that we face. I think, you know, I agree with Catherine, it's all in the execution of what comes out of these documents. And I think that's a separate conversation about the willingness of the the players, particularly governments, to act on what is a pretty consistent theme of foundational challenges over the last, you know, 30 to 40 years. So that's the perspective that I come to it from. 
I thought what you had to say was really interesting, Catherine, but I do think it was a bit unfair to to the process, you know, having seen it close at hand. I mean, we none of us can escape the, the times we're in, but, you know, the, the nick in my, you know, long experience of it really does try very hard. It knows what all the traps are and, and does try to avoid them. And, you know, uh, of course they have gone, as you say, to the great and the good, but, you know, the mediocre and indifferent are not really worth talking to. So I, I don't know who you do. <laughs> You know, you could have done a vox pop around the streets of, you know, Houston or something, but I'm not sure that it would have got you all that far. Well, and they did to some extent, actually. So they do point out that they consulted in schools, they went to business leaders, they they travelled around the world. So, of course, it's not just an elite echo chamber, but I think... My point is that it's hard to escape the framing of our times and something like this document also contributes and perhaps entrenches some of of that framing as well. And the National Security College at ANU, Catherine, I mean, have you made efforts to try to break out of that in in some way? Look, the the Futures Hub always, always tries. And one of the lessons that I suppose I've picked up from my colleagues there who are much more well-versed in futures methodology than I is the need to kind of bring bring your foxes to examine the theories of the hedgehogs, right? So they do in this report kind of bring together a bunch of of data and theories from a range of people. And then it's up for the analysts to be the foxes who can consume a, a lot of different pieces of analysis, a lot of bits of conflicting data and try to figure out what the golden thread of truth is coming through that and I think absolutely to give credit to this report and I don't mean to I don't mean to trash it by any means but to be a little bit um, contrary I think that's something that they've tried to do really solidly. Okay now it's your turn Darren you've heard we've heard from a Limian on this approach how would the master himself approach this as an academic? Ah, <laughs> I don't know what to say, Alan. I'm embarrassed. The, look, the type of of academic research I do focuses on, you know, focuses almost exclusively on 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 cause and effect relationships. So you, you know, you're trying to investigate outcomes in international affairs that are interesting or important, and to do that, you know, as Catherine said, you construct theoretical models, frameworks, categories of these relationships. And basically, you then sort of look and see how well these models do, and they're, they're simplified stories of reality at usefully understanding or explaining the world around you. Now, one of the problems is that as an academic, we tend to look backwards because you want to rely on hard evidence. And I think academics are very uncomfortable looking forward because, you know, for the obvious reason that you don't have anything concrete to rely upon. And the other problem is that. In the phenomenon that we're all talking about in this world, everything is, as we say in social sciences, overdetermined. Like it has multiple causes and it's going to be impossible to come up with any one model that accounts for everything. And so I go by the axiom that all models are wrong, but some are more useful than others. So what makes a model useful? Well, there is a trade-off in every model building exercise between being comprehensive and being manageable. The more factors you include in your model, and we've got a 100-plus page document to deal with today, yeah, that makes a more accurate but also a more complex story and it makes it harder to fit it into some coherent and tractable and communicable product that can then be digested by policymakers. And so you do need to simplify 
And I think my point only is that as an academic, I'm trying to be conscious and very transparent in in how I'm going about the simplification process so that others can, you know, can you know, see my work, I suppose. So does that mean that you think this kind of report has value? Presumably, well, I know, I think, that you don't see your job as an IR academic as to draw out the uh, practical implications in your theoretical models, and I, ex- I accept that. That's a, that's a very proper position, but someone has to do that job. Is this how you would do it? I can't think of a better way. I mean, I, I read through and was nodding along the entire time. I mean, I like the idea that this document essentially represents a summary of foreign affairs articles for the past four years. Like, don't read foreign affairs, just read global trends every four years and it will basically summarise it for you in, in, in one package. And that's interesting because it, like, it, it was hard to disagree with any of it. And I guess the only place you can disagree is either that you something was left out, so the model wasn't complex enough, or you might disagree, and we'll talk about this later, with the scenarios that they posit towards the end, but they give multiple scenarios, and so the whole point is that is to disagree. And, and even, even then, the scenarios themselves are so plausible that it's hard to, to disagree with them wholly. And so yeah, we've already discussed, it's a political document, it, it, and, and it's embedded in a system that limits what they can say about themselves in particular. But as an academic, you know, I would have seen in merit in, in trying to be a bit more disagreeable, in trying to be a bit more specific and concrete about the consequences, especially, again, this is to focus on the US, what happens if there is a major erosion of democracy in a, in a large Western country? Maybe you wouldn't say the US in particular. And there's a, a philosophy of knowledge point here that in being disagreeable, in trying to be clear, but also disagreeable, that actually can help promote a discourse. It can help promote, generate discussion. If you just read it and sort of go, yep, I agree with that. I agree with that. Often that is the end of the conversation and people move on. And so there's sort of a a commitment that I have to try to at least say things that are going to elicit a strong response. But again, this is a political document and maybe that wasn't, it's not possible for them to do that. But as an academic, that's what I would try to do. Okay. Well, let's turn to the way Global Trends does this, which is to build a report around two organising principles, identifying and assessing the broad forces that are shaping the future strategic environment, and then exploring how populations and leaders will act on and respond to the forces. It then has three different sections titled Structural Forces, Emerging Dynamics and Future Scenarios. So let's use each section as a launchpad for discussion, starting with the structural forces. After a preliminary discussion, good preliminary discussion, I thought about the impact of COVID-19, which it expects to increase debt, especially in developing countries, reinforce nationalism, deepen national and international inequality, and elevate the role of non-state actors the report then looks at five structural forces. And these are, excuse me for going through them, but you probably have it all, listeners, read the read the report. The first is demographics and human development, in which it expects slowing population growth with sub-Saharan Africa and parts of South Asia, the only parts of the world that will account for population increase. Pressure on migration is likely to increase and it will be difficult even to sustain progress in education, health and poverty reduction. Secondly, the environment in which it expects climate change to exacerbate risks to human and national security with 
the burdens of that being unevenly distributed. In economics, the third area, it again speaks to rising national debt, a more complex and fragmented trading environment, the global spread of trade in services with all the implications that that has socially, and new employment disruptions, which will shape conditions within and between states. And fourth, technology where the pace and reach of technological developments will increase transforming human experiences and capabilities while creating new tensions. Global competition, it says, for the core elements of technological supremacy will increase. Now, we're obviously not going to recapitulate the report here, so what I want to do is to ask each of you to pick one of these four forces, I think I said five, I meant four, to unpack, particularly as it affects Australia. Heather, you're the resident economist, so I thought I'd ask you to cover economics or demographics or the sort of interaction between the two. And Catherine, you're the expert on technology. So Heather, can I start with you? Thanks, Alan. So a couple of trends that I guess captured my thinking. Again, they're, they're obvious, but the first is just the limited flexibility governments are going to have over the next two decades for all the reasons you set out with high debt levels, fragmented trading system, employment disruption, broad array of actors and less open economies, including that of China. Growth in the post-pandemic world looks like it's going to be slower and uneven. I suppose the most striking fact for me in the report is really this number that of the 1.5 billion people that reached middle income status over the last 20 years, we're unlikely to see a repeat of that going forward as global productivity falls and as the working age population starts to to end. Now, this is quite a sobering thought when you think about it, because after years characterised by declining income inequality between countries and income inequality rising within countries, we are now facing a scenario of widening income inequality both within countries and between countries. So my take out of the report, and it uses this language, is that inequality is here to stay. Now, with that income polarisation that comes with that, we've just seen over the last at least 15 years or so a rise in populism and nationalism in, in response to decades of globalisation. So, you know, are we seeing a scenario which we could have compounded with the potential for political and social instability as governments really struggle to meet the expectations of the middle class? And I think the the NIC reinforces this by really saying they think the 2030 Millennium Development Goals will fail to be achieved, and that's going to have the largest impact on this emerging middle class as they demand more progress on health and education and the environment. The second theme, more positive theme, I guess, is many of the demographic forces that have been baked into forecasts for decades now will come to fruition and that is particularly within our region. So our region is going to remain the most economically dynamic, even though population growth in the region is slowing and will, after 2040, start to contract. But at the same time, we've got some of the most populous countries in, in Asia are now positioned to be the world's largest economies, with India 
are projected to, to be the world's most populous country by 2027 and the third largest economy and Indonesia possibly breaking into the ranks of the top 10 economies. Now, obviously, their per capita incomes are not going to be near advanced economies per capita income. Meanwhile, in rapidly aging Northeast Asia, the Nick calls out, you know, what is being debated on a regular basis is China being most vulnerable to the uh, demographic crunch given its aging population. And again, not new, but by saying that China is in danger of hitting that middle income trap, even if its workforce becomes more productive. And that is that is a really, I think, important point. And this was the next judgment before, I think, the recent intensification of China's shift to a more status techno-nationalistic economic model, which is likely, you know, in the long run, probably to damage its growth prospects. So those two trends, I think, present, you know, as you'd expect, challenges and opportunities for Australia. Asia's got the potential to gain most from the demographic dividend, but that will depend on the right policy frameworks and obviously sitting at the epicentre of geostrategic competition, the potential there for disruption in our region is significant. But for me, what it reinforces yet again is that this is where our destiny lies and we still have to really keep engaging. And it certainly supports the need for more comprehensive engagement with India and Indonesia. Heather, can I jump in? In the interest of, of trying to be as disagreeable as possible, when I read the economic section, I asked myself, what is the, the red team interpretation of this? And I came up with, for listeners who, who know their economics, essentially the modern monetary theory argument, which was nicely captured in a, in a recent podcast. Again, I'm such a stand for Ezra Klein that he did with Adam Tooze. And the argument essentially goes that anything we can do, we can afford. And there is a debate happening in the United States right now. And this, of course, doesn't apply to every country around the world, but it does apply to countries that do have their own currencies and large economies. That the entire economics profession is sort of getting its obsession with debt wrong and that there really needs to be a supply-side revolution that focuses on, on making things. And yes, that is going to invite inflation, but the consequences of, of inflation are far, far less serious than of not doing the kinds of massive supply side, you know, stimuluses that are needed. So we don't want to allow ourselves to be constrained by debt in the way that this report seems to suggest we will be. I mean, do you have a, a take on, on that debate and whether or not there is a shift in economic thinking happening that might invalidate some of the conclusions of the report? I think there's, if I can answer that in two ways, I think there's a genuine debate going on in economics about what evolution have we seen in economic thinking that is going to support this change environment. And I think it's starting with the focus on an inflation and, you know, can you inflate your way out of this and does it doesn't really matter. But if you think about the response to the crisis, the rule book's been thrown out by governments anyway when it comes to fiscal policy. So there's a recalibration going on between the arms of policy. I'd like to come back and talk about Australia in that context, not in terms of the framework, but, but you know, when, when I think about it fundamentally, no country in the end defines the fundamental tenets of economics. You know, you can have a debate about the forces, but some of the forces we're talking about here on, on demographics and the economy and the things that drive that are really just set in stone and can determine the, the history of a country. So let me give you an example when we talk about Australia, because if you think about Australia, the, the pandemic has really, you know, really accelerated many of the pre-existing 
demographic and other challenges that we've had. And the most sort of startling and enduring is really going to be a smaller population reflecting what has happened of a, I guess, a sharp fall in migration and also in a temporary fall in our fertility rate. So, so like other ageing countries and particularly democracies, we're going to struggle to deal with the health costs that come with an ageing population unless you make difficult decisions which really do go back to the fundamentals of raising taxes or reducing benefits or raising your your productivity so you know in the end going to your question growth and living standards are really determined by some fundamental forces and they do not change over time so the treasury framework has been really important over the years the three piece framework about depends on the size of your population depends the participation of your workforce and it depends on productivity of your workforce and productivity is still the long-term driver of a country's future and let's be clear about what it is all it is is about bringing together the various factors of production and how clever you are in using them. So, so I think that that is still a tenet that remains to be seen. Monetary and fiscal policy then become, you know, tools for government. So, you know, in the absence of an uplift in our own country through migration, we're going to have slower population growth. And that'll be the main reason for Australia's slowdown, you know, over the next 20 to 40 years. Aging the population is going to reduce our labour force participation and our productivity, which has been the most important source of our growth over many decades, has been slowing for a number of years. So then it comes back to, you know, the classic reform problems that, that economists and others have been focusing on and they've been well documented, you know, whether it's education, infrastructure, focusing on the digital economy, but it's the long-term focus, the sources of new growth, which are the tools that I think we really need to think more carefully about. So there's nothing new in one sense in the policy responses in the choices that countries choose to make. What's missing is a sense of urgency, I think, in how you go about making those choices. Thanks, Heather. Catherine, talk us through the technology angle, which sort of feeds into some of the issues that Heather's just raised, including productivity. Yeah, absolutely. So the report takes us through, I think, what are now well known to be some of the cutting edge technologies of our time that will shape the future. So we're looking at things like human machine interfaces, the developments of new materials, biotechnology, advanced computing, virtual reality, artificial intelligence, robotics, you name it, it's got a place in this report. And I think the report makes two really important observations about how these tech trends will combine to influence the future. And the first of those is that it's not going to be just one of those technologies alone that will have a profound effect. It's going to be combinations of areas of science or of particular technologies, often in unexpected ways that produce the real breakthroughs, the real value or the real risk. The second observation that the report makes is that all of this is fused with geopolitical competition and states in particular are rushing to lock in advantages for themselves because there is a sense that once you get somewhere in this area, once you get that lock-in effect, the return on investment or the benefit to your company or your state will continue through time. What I thought was most interesting, though, about tech trends in this report is that it is situated within the structural forces part of the report. And I thought in some way that may be playing into a misconception that technology is in some way immutable and that the trajectory of technology 
is something that is set by vast impersonal forces outside of people's and states' controls. And I thought it underestimated to some extent the way in which society and people and adoption of technology shape technology's future and also the way in which ideology and belief systems shape which technologies are invested in and which are not. So even something like artificial intelligence, for example, I don't buy the argument that we are on some type of travelator with AI, that it's going to go in some direction over which we've got no influence. I think the way in which it pans out will depend on decisions people make. And even the fact that AI is such a geopolitical priority is also shaped by ideology. So Julian Gewurz, a China scholar, has written about how the pursuit of technological supremacy for the CCP is in many respects kind of a, an ideological end in and of itself. And many countries pursue AI and modernization for a political purpose, not just an economic or a technological one. And so I thought I did have questions, therefore, about whether or not technology is a structural force or perhaps one that's more embedded with some of the content that comes later in the report around decision-making by individuals and societies and states. The other question I had was, and this I think comes from when you've got such a large report, the temptation is to kind of include everything. So you've covered every risk and so no one can come back in 10 years, 20 years and say, hey, you didn't flag that. And the report is relatively light on in the way it discusses artificial general intelligence. There's this magnificent kind of graph in there that shows the development of, of AI. And there's got a, it has a box that says, flipping through my report here, the report says the emergence of artificial general intelligence and its, its capability, so whether it will emerge and if it does, what it will look like is completely unclear. And I feel like they, the authors of the report wanted to put AGI, artificial general intelligence, in there, and the scientific consensus on whether or not it's even possible, let alone when it will emerge, is not clear. They wanted to flag it in there. They wanted to flag it as a potential existential risk. But I would have liked to have seen more in there about where the balance of expert consensus sits in terms of likelihood of emergence and if it emerges, what that consequence would be. So I would have liked a little bit more probabilistic assessment contestation in there rather than just kind of flagging it, dropping it and moving on. Catherine, to, to get to your first point, if we think about the, the four structural forces, demographics, economics, climate change, the other three, one feature of each of those is that you can kind of predict winners and losers that are going to, in terms of how these forces are going to play out over the future. And I got a hint from what you said then that we might be able to do something similar with technology. I mean, of course, there's going to be winners and losers in terms of market power and who's able to get to a particular technology first and establish themselves. But I'm, I'm interested in the idea that we might be able to chart winning and losing trajectories based upon political systems. I mean, are we entering a time where there are going to be particular strengths for democracy or for autocracy as they interact with and leverage emerging technologies? I think the report at least gives that sense. And, and I think that is a, a view, particularly in the US right now, that certain systems will deal with technological advancements and potential technological shocks better. So the report 
puts a lot of stock in the idea that technology will enhance the capability to control populations and to surveil populations, which is a particular temptation for authoritarian regimes and might, in some sense, result in a pushback. And I think that's a bit of a clear trend and that that plays out in one of the scenarios, right, this notion of a renaissance of, of democracies. There's also a sense in there that for some countries that try and close them up themselves off, so again, more closed authoritarian societies from these technological trends that they might find themselves locked out of economic benefit and that, in fact, it might be impossible because of the, the borderless nature of the internet and technology. Again, though, I think that's a matter of, I, I think that is a very, very defensible view, but I also think it is just a view and it's not it's not a structural inevitability. It is a choice and it is something that is that is more or less likely than other outcomes, but I don't think it's an immutable future reality one way or the other. And I would argue there's also temptations for democracies to use technology in a way that leads to control and surveillance and that might also lead to pushback that we should be alive to. I, I, I don't think it's helpful just to assume that it is a problem that only authoritarian governments will face. Darren, let's turn to the other structural force, which was the environment. Now, I know this is not your area of expertise, but you're the only one left, and so (laughs) we've got to go to you. The report notes that by 2040, we're likely to have exceeded 1.5 degrees of warming and that the impact will deepen risks to human and national security. And as I said before, that all countries will be affected, but the burdens are going to fall more heavily on poorer countries. So what what did you make of the environmental section? I think a good starting point on the environment is to echo a point that Catherine made about technology, which is it's inherently political. It's as political as any other issue. And so if you're going to do future assessments, you need to incorporate politics. You know, you can't make assessments based just on scientific knowledge alone. You know, so take climate change, for example. You know, you need to do a projection that's going to be based upon climate science and and, and how places are going to warm and what sea levels will do. You need to do one that incorporates technology, how are we going to respond? And, of course, you need to incorporate politics. I mean, you cannot understand Australia's position on on climate change policy without understanding or knowledge of the specific dynamics around this issue in the coalition party room. So it's, it's, it's that type of detail. But start on the politics, you know, I am very sceptical that we're going to see a binding agreement between states. You know, it's not just climate. I mean, any kind of of bold cooperation that requires individual constraints to sacrifice their sovereignty, to, to make costly choices is really hard in today's international system. And, and this is even made even harder by the febrile environment of strategic competition that we're in. So I don't see big cooperative change. What I do see, however, is a patchwork of, I think, still meaningful action that's going to be taken by individual countries and by sub-national actors, whether that's states, like the state of California, as we've discussed in the past, or indeed you know, companies. So the headline I see is that politics is not going to work for you know, in favour of, of environmental cooperation, which leaves technology, right? If there are no big political solutions, the solutions are going to have to be technological. We're going to have to invent our way out of the problem or at least invent our way to mitigations for the problem. And can we do that? You know, can we do big things like geoengineering? Can we block out the sun as some have, have suggested we might need to do? 
Yeah, I don't know, but I'm more of an optimist here based upon how well we've dealt with the science of the pandemic. You know, we came up with vaccines at record pace. We're continuing to come up with new inventions and drugs. And so I think what we need from a policy point of view, and this is less of a projection and more of an injunction, is to, is to bring that kind of urgency, right? That, that, that if governments actually get behind it, that the problem that we can in, invent some pretty cool things to solve the problem. But I think also, you know, in terms of the final point that I want to make is about is about mitigation or about living with with environmental degradation. That 1.5 degrees is essentially baked into where we are right now. We're never going to be able to reverse it, and so I think we're going to need to think not just about how to to, to slow down the rate of, of carbon growth, but also just living with the consequences. Right, thinking about adjustments to our lives and adaptation. I think is the word that is used rather than simply just trying to, to solve climate change. So how do you do that? I guess it's about investment. And, and to bring Australia in, we have a lot of experience with some of the major consequences of, of, of climate change. We know about bushfires. We know about droughts. We know to some extent about flooding. And so perhaps there's an opportunity for us to focus our technological research and development on, on, on those kinds of solutions because they're going to be needed around the world. Now, we know that you've revealed yourself on this podcast as a modern monetary theorist, and so <laughs> and so, you obviously don't care that this is going to cost heaps of money and further increase the national debt, but wouldn't you concede that that tension, that sort of tension between the need to spend more money on this is going to further increase stresses in the international system? So first, I wouldn't say I'm a convert, but I'm definitely MMT curious. So we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll put it that way. Look, yes, it will create and then exacerbate a new fault line, but I'm not entirely sure how that will play out. I think there will be a divide between states that have are unified on the issue, the, where the publics have coalesced behind a, a quite a, a strong progressive stance. And maybe that will be because they are experiencing the impacts most severely. And I can think of, you know, the South, small island states of the South Pacific who are unified on this issue. But the question is the larger states, the ones that have the power. I think they are going, especially in, in, in democracy, is going to remain very divided internally. And that is going to you know, prevent them from, from really from, from bold action. So I guess this is my question for the, for the rest of you. To reference a, you know, another Ezra Klein podcast, an interview with the, the climate journalist Elizabeth Colbert, the two of them discuss, and let's be clear, this is on a New York Times podcast. They discuss the question of what do you do when politics fails to give us a solution, right? If, if we come to the view that political systems like that in the United States and indeed in Australia and around the world cannot come up with the kind of policy that is essential to bring meaningful solutions to this problem, what do you do? I mean, do you need a new political system? And they talk, they, they're not endorsing it, but they talk about the prospect of eco-terrorism and violence as a way of, of a possible reaction, right? Things that are written about in novels but that could you know, come out in, in, into real life. I mean, when you think about cross history, it's usually taken wars, right? Massive global conflicts to focus the attention of global politics in ways that create solutions. So you think of the treaties of Westphalia, the Congress of Vienna, the League of Nations and the UN and the, and the United Nations all followed massive conflicts. I mean, do we need something as big or as bigger to get the attention of everyone that's as devastating as those w w wars were? I don't know how this plays out, but I mean, Catherine, can I ask you about the politics of this? I mean, what's your take on the, the ability of political systems to provide solutions in climate change and, and environment generally? Well, I think 
I'm going to take it back to the report there and say that it's it's tracking what you're talking about and predicts a massive rise in political volatility. But it's not particularly optimistic about whether or not this will work. So one of the or a number of the themes in there are around a mismatch between public's expectations and demands of government and the ability of government to deliver. And I think climate change is, is one key issue, no doubt, kind of sitting behind that assessment. But it, it, it makes the observation that over the reporting period, it's unlikely that we'll kind of come to some new governmental structure that solves it. That gives the example of the Arab Spring, for instance, that it exposed serious shortcomings in prevailing political orders, but we've not yet figured out a new way to govern and arguably, you know, we've we've kind of gone backwards as a result of popular protest there. So what does that mean for those wanting to take policy prescriptions from the report? I think government needs to be alive to the fact that if it doesn't deliver, it will be met with instability and protest and declining trust that will complicate its ability to govern across a range of different areas. So meeting public expectations and shaping public expectations is key. From the perspective of groups that want action on different issues, I'm less clear on what the pathway is forward. I wouldn't I wouldn't advocate eco-terrorism as a way forward because I'm not actually sure that you know the the, the research would would back you up that that violent protest leads to outcomes. I, I think the the research might suggest and the pathways that this report might suggest are more around transnational networks, grouping people together, informational campaigns, leveraging people's identities in new and different ways. Because ultimately, when it comes to influencing people, beliefs, actions are relatively changeable. Identity is much more closely held and, and, and much more a point of influence for good or good or evil. Trying to leverage that in new ways new creative ways might be the the way forward rather than a wholesale disruption or destabilisation of the existing systems that we have. Heather, do you have a take here? I have a take. When we come to talking about the emerging dynamics and the role of the state, I've got a few thoughts. But on your your question, although I should say I'm really still struggling to figure out what modern monetary theory is really talking about to start with, so I just want that on the record. So... How do you deal with political inertia is is the central question. And, I mean, the report does does point the way without solutions. There are two ways you can get significant change. One is crises and just after the aftermath of a crisis, but it's a very small window. And we, we've seen that in terms of year one of the pandemic response versus year two of the pandemic response. And the second way is the slow burn and how the alignment of issues just come together, whether it's coalition building, luck, a new leader, it's it's serendipity. So I don't think there's any clear way where you get wholesale political change in our current environment. But I do think your point about a patchwork approach when it comes to dealing with some of these is really, you know, that's the world, that's the world we're in. And technology, I mean, technology has huge, provides us with huge opportunities in ways that we don't even understand at this point in time. We've spoken about some aspects of it, but it will be game changing in ways that, you know, we're talking about the, I guess, AI and other things as the the means as distinct from what are the ends. There will be good things and there will be bad things, but technology got us through 
a pandemic in terms of a vaccine in ways that we would not have anticipated 18 months ago. So, you know, I'm a bit more optimistic that every now and again in history, a circuit breaker turns up and there's no doubt we'll miss that circuit breaker. We won't predict it. So we'll leave it there. And that will be part one of our conversation with Heather Smith and Catherine Manstead about Futures 2040. Stay tuned for part two when we will talk about the other remaining sections of the report, emerging dynamics and how the world is going to respond and plausible scenarios for 2040 itself. We thank Mitchell McIntosh for editing today and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Look for part two in your feed soon.